Hi, welcome to System Change Made Simple. So you might have heard the phrase, system change, not climate change, which is sometimes used at climate rallies. This series of podcasts, sets of podcasts, if you like, is designed to explore that idea and to talk about what systems are and how we might change the system. So the racist system, the patriarchal system, the system of social class and inequality on a global scale. I'm a sociologist and environmentalist. So get yourself a hot coffee or something similar. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. Okay, so I've left this series of podcasts till later in my podcast offerings. And the, and the reason for that is obvious. So it's a fairly theoretical topic, or at least you may think it's a fairly theoretical topic. In terms of my own thinking works, I mean, it's like it's a key fundamental topic and in a way it should come first. And I would also say that I've been making assumptions based upon the account I'm about to give in all of the other podcasts so far. But, you know, I think it's of interest and it leads on to some topics in this series that I'm doing now, which are of obvious interest to people in discussing the attacks on left politics coming from conservatives. So this um, series is called What is Human Nature? And the, and the first one is simply on that topic. <laughs> Let's start off at the beginning. And later ones are going to be on, you know, whether aggressions are part of human nature and competitive aggression is mandated by evolutionary processes and that kind of thing. And to try and explain where aggression comes from, I'm going to actually repeat one of the podcasts that I've used before uh, the phrase human nature is a bit archaic and when we hear it now it's often like the context where we're talking about something we think is maybe a bit bad about people and trying to explain behavior which maybe not particularly moral like we're saying something like oh they're just jealous and that of course that's human nature or they're particularly greedy and of course that's human nature and so on and just claim it's inevitable. But my view is that the concept of human nature is used all the time to, to try and explain things that go on in the world and what people do and so on. So this talks in two parts. What do we mean by human nature and what is in fact human nature? And I'm going to have a stab at answering both of those questions. Okay, so what do we mean by human nature? The concept of human nature assumes that people are pretty similar to each other that human beings, are, you know, like one human being and another, and looks at the things that are common to people. So we're looking at things that people share, like we could also say, oh, what is the nature of an apple or what is the nature of a mountain or whatever, or a wolf or something like that. But actually we're looking at people and saying, what is their nature? So that's the first thing we mean by it. And the term human nature refers to the motivations common to people. So it's not about everything that's common to people, like having eyes and hair and nose or whatever, legs and so on. It's about the specific things that drive people to behave in certain way, the basic motives of people. And what I'd also say is that we're not looking for like the holy grail of what it is to be truly human, you know, like as compared to other animals which are completely different from us. No, not at all. We're looking at what are the common drives of humans, which may be exactly the same as many other animals. And in fact, that would be my view that they are. They're not that different in many ways. So it's often regarded as an extremely controversial topic, what human nature is. My view is that 
it becomes controversial on particular issues, and I'll talk about some of these, not just in this talk, but later on. But actually, it's not that much of a rocket science. And like, in a sense, you know, having God knows how many years of world history, and not to mention the history of the human species, we're in a really good position now to talk about what's human nature. And I suppose what, what, the way we work it out is, first of all, by introspection. In other words, we say, well, what are our motives for doing things? And then we look around at other people and say, oh, yeah, they're, they're similarly motivated. So that gives us a, a concept of what human nature is. So that's the first thing that we do. So introspection. The second thing is interpreting the behaviour of other people. Well, they're doing that because, you know, they're driven by this basic motive to do that. And this is an example of that or an offshoot of that, whatever. And then, of course, to be more scientific and give the rollout of the scientific method and scientific understandings of social life, we're looking at cross-cultural comparisons, you know, especially pre-colonial societies around the world and also at the ancient history that we've got, you know, like the ancient Romans and the Babylonians and whatever, whatever, whatever. So these are the methods that we use to discover what human nature is. What I'd also say is that like it's a typical scientific concept and it's not about what particular groups of people may think is human nature. It's about what it actually is. In other words, okay, making this point really obvious, like I could be having a conversation with some of the people who are described on Vikings. Let's imagine they're real people. And I go back in time in the time machine and I'm talking to, you know, King Harold or Ragnar or Bjorn or, you know, Ivar the Boneless or whatever. There was a wonderful scene in a recent episode where Ivar the Boneless and King Harold were urging the, the, the Vikings to go on another raid to England because that's, you know, what makes Vikings tick and so on and so forth. And like, you, you can imagine a conversation with them where they said, well, you know, human nature is to be warlike and aggressive. And this is one of the great pleasures of life. And anyone can be brought up to understand this. Well, you may or may not agree with that. But the point is that they're making a claim about human nature. And just because they say it doesn't necessarily make it true. And that applies to all of us, of course. But it's like, what we're trying to discover is an underlying reality of the human species, not something that any particular group of humans might think about that. So in logical terms, it's etic, not emic, meaning it's from the outside looking at the way things are rather than from the inside looking at the social group, looking at how they define it. So now I'm going to get into a bit of philosophy and it's not actually that difficult. So I hope you find it easy. So when we're looking at basic motivations, what we're actually looking at is a set of causal powers. A causal power is a property of something that causes things to happen. So if we say, you know, look, this stone has a lot of weight, it's heavy, you know, da, da, da. Then, then we know the weight of the stone is something which is likely to be manifest in various ways. Like if we drop it on our toe, it's likely to hurt or, you know, if it's on a table and we push it off, it'll fall to the ground. It feels heavy to lift up. You know, these are all the things that the causal property weight gives to this particular object. The reason this is called a causal property is that it's a property of something which causes things to happen. So weight causes the stone to feel heavy. So a desire to eat causes us to start eating our meal and so on. Now, the motivations of human beings are exactly that kind of thing. So when we talk about hunger, it's a drive, which means that it's likely to have certain effects, going out to eat something, growing some food, you know, going on hunt, whatever. 
And it's like, so the causal power in human beings is to be hungry. It's a basic motive. It's part of human nature and so forth. Now, one of the strange things about powers is that they're often named in terms of the effects that they're likely to bring about. Okay, it doesn't mean they always bring about these effects, but they're named in terms of those, uh, those likely effects, possible effects. So, for example, if we take creativity to be a basic drive of humans, which is what I'm going to say later, then what is the likely effect and, or outcome of that? Creations, you know, like doing, creating things. So in other words, the term creativity, the term for the causal power is the same term as the term for the things that it's likely to produce. Now, causal powers can be present without being manifest in the events typically caused by that power. Okay, so we can have a champagne glass that sits on the shelf for like decades and decades and decades. And we still say it's a fragile champagne glass. We know that if we dropped it on the floor or, you know, chucked it into the dishwasher or something, it's quite likely to break. So that power of being fragile is not the same thing as the manifestations of fragility, which is in breaking, right? There's a distinction between the effects of the power and the causal power or tendency in itself. And this applies to human powers. Like, for example, we could say, well, you know, she actually didn't realise she was good at music. She went to this wonderful concert and she suddenly thought, you know, I really need to learn to play the saxophone. And she spent months doing that. And like, you know, after two years, she was amazing. And of course, everyone goes, well, you know, she's always had this capacity for music, but she's never really worked at it before. So what that's saying is that this causal power is present, but not manifest. Powers are real. They're just as much real, just because, you know, they're not manifest and we attribute them to things without maybe seeing them. I mean, where's fragility? I'm looking at a champagne glass, where's the fragility? They're not necessarily observable. So it's important to realise that when we talk about the basic motivations of humans in terms of the theory of human nature, we're assuming that these basic motivations are real things in people, just like ears and, you know, and a nose and so on. All right, so now just to sum up, what, what is human nature? Human nature is the causal powers common to people which explain most of people's behaviour. Right now, I'm going to go on now to the second part of this talk, which is about what is in fact human nature. And as I said, this can become controversial and some of the controversies about this, I'll leave over to another talk. But I, at the moment, I'm just going to say, well, you know, here we go. This is what I think about it. This is how I look at it. And the list that I'm about to give you is a list which actually fits with what most people who are writing about social life assume, you know, and like sociologists have a bit of a habit of not talking about human nature. We don't mention the human nature word, you know, the elephant in the room, as I've called it in one of my articles. But my view is that the concept of human nature is assumed. And what I'm going to outline is, I think, a set of understandings about human nature that will be seen as somewhat common sense. And the reason they're common sense is that like, we've had all of these eons of history to work out what human nature is, one. And two, that these kind of assumptions are being made in lots of understandings of society, whether that's coming out of journalism, economics, sociology, or psychology, or whatever. Okay. So the desire for food hunger and appetite. Well, these are obviously aspects of human nature. And I'm reminded of this 
book by Sachs on poverty, where he talks about this grandmother in Malawi, you know, and talks about her terrible situation. And he says, like, you know, she reaches into a pocket and she's got a handful of mouldy maize and that's all she's got for the evening meal. And she and her grandchildren only eat, you know, once a day. And sometimes they go a whole day without eating. And so what is this about? It's about the basic human motive of hunger, the desire to eat and so on. And of course, it's manifest in these kind of little incidental things, but it's also hugely important in like the theory of social class. Why does social class happen? Why do peasants obey the ruling class? And, you know, why? Do, how does social class come about? Well, actually, because agriculture enables peasants to produce more food and some of that goes to the ruling class and enables them to be a specialist ruling class. Now, all of that is about the human desire for food. It doesn't really make any sense, that explanation, unless you're making that assumption. So that's fairly obvious. The desire for health and physical comfort, but also just to live, you know, like these, let's call it the desire for health, but it's like a broad spectrum. Again, this is somewhat obvious. Again, going back to the example from Sachs, he also talks about how one of the granddaughters has caught malaria and that she very well might die. And to get to the hospital, the grandma has to walk in the stifling heat, you know, for like a half a day to get to the hospital. And when she gets there, the, the supplies of the anti-malaria drugs have run out and she has to go home again. And, that, you know, okay, so what's all that about? So that's about the human desire to live well. The granddaughter is suffering from a possibly fatal disease. The desire for social pleasures, affection, appreciation, giving and receiving love. So that's an important thing that, in other words, we don't just like receiving affection from other people. We also enjoy giving affection to other people, behaving in a caring way. That's actually a pleasure of people. And like, that's really obvious in the classic case of, you know, the mother and the small child and so on. But what I would say is that it's a general potential of human beings of either sex and any age and so on. It's not restricted. Okay, so let me look at some examples. This is from Anne Oakley's study of 40 London housewives, and she interviews these London housewives about how terrible their situation is and how they hate housework and they hate being a housewife. And so these are women whose husbands are employed and they've got kids under five and they're home and she averages out they're doing 70 hours a week of work. But they don't just complain about the length of their working hours or the monotony. I'll talk about that in a minute, but they talk about the social aspects of this situation. So one is that they feel that housework is unappreciated. One says, you know, I say to people that I'm a housewife and they think I must be a cabbage. You know, like, in other words, like the, the lowest status, you know, the, the most stupid person you can imagine, just a cabbage. And so this is a lack of a social appreciation, right? Okay, another thing they talk about is loneliness. Like another interviewee says, oh, you know, like when the milkman comes around, it's an event. You know, and I wait all day for my husband to come home because there's no one to talk to except the kids who are like, you know, under two, whatever. And and so this is loneliness or social isolation, isolation an aspect of the desire for social pleasures. So now I, I've got up to three now, food and hunger, health and physical comfort, social pleasures. Now, the next three. It's creativity. People have a desire to create things, like make things. I mean, the world's... You know, awash with artifacts creatively constructed by people to be aesthetic in some way. And this is a very etic, you know, to go back to what I said before, approach to it, because like most people in pre the global capitalist era and so on, 
thought that they were creating this beautiful object to represent the spirit more effectively or, or something like that. You know, like it's not necessarily done. And they weren't thinking, oh, I'm creating a great artwork, but actually they were creating a great artwork. So the way that we look at that now, looking at all of the, you know, different examples of human cultures is that, say, there is an aesthetic drive. People like making things. They enjoy creating things. They like excitement. That's part of being creative, like the adrenaline rush of doing something new and taking your risk creatively. And Marx talks about this a lot and talks about alienated labour. That's labour where people are just paid to do a job that they hate and they're being told what to do all the time. And there's no expression in the work of their inner being. They don't create anything enjoyable. They're just doing the same thing all, all day, like appalling. It's exactly what happens in factories today. Don't think it's ended in the 19th century. Okay, so this is curiosity, aesthetic, pleasure, making things and excitement. I've gone under that. Sexuality. Okay, so I'm going to jump out on a limb here and say that I think that Freud's picture of sexuality is quite, quite the accurate one, that we have a capacity for sexual pleasure and that it's not that firmly laid down. And, and although obviously it's got a, a role in reproduction, that's only part of what it is. It's much more global and that and Freud's the term he uses is polymorphous perverse I think that's actually true and what we discover around the world is that there are really different expressions of sexuality and sexual desire and the last of these is one that's very often left out off a list of human desires and I scratched my head you know why do people not talk about this so I mean obviously it's assumed that it's like you get a list of human desires and you sometimes don't get this added onto the list. And I call this the desire for autonomy. And I don't mean anything, you know, massively philosophical about that or some kind of political project autonomy, you know, da, 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 you know, like, ooh, we seek autonomy. No, I just mean the desire to get your own way at any particular point in time. You want to get what you want. You intend to get what you want. Let's say that that's a basic motivation, a basic desire, a part of human nature. And again, I can reference Anne Oakley's study of housewives. For example, there's a whole discussion in the book about how husbands make decisions in the household. And, and it's partly due to their economic power. Like, for example, women will say, oh, you know, I, I would have liked to have had three children. But my husband said we should stick at one, you know, like, so that's what we're doing, that kind of thing. So that's about autonomy. So she's not getting what she wants, even though the husband's getting what he wants. Now, I'm going to now talk about the last topic. Okay, so one of the things that, that sociology is very closely associated with, and like it's also being taken up in the sort of intelligentsia of the left generally, is the idea that there's no such thing as human nature, that all of this is socially constructed. Basically, I think that's a load of codswallop. Really, it's just ridiculous. But anyway... I mean, you know, why do people want to eat? I mean, if it's not part of human nature. Anyway, let's not even go there. But what I want to say is this. Human nature, as I've defined it, like the six basic desires, you could say no and yes to the question, is behaviour socially constructed? Are our desires socially constructed? The basic desires of human nature are innate and fundamental in human behaviour and motivation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is how they're defined in detail is definitely socially constructed and varies a lot between different societies. <coughs> and the most obvious example to use is food. I mean, in Anglo-Celtic Australia, the concept of eating a snail or a horse, for example, 
is regarded as offensive, well, disgusting in the case of a snail and, and kind of immoral and, and yucky in the case of a horse. Now, and yet, I mean, from a purely biological point of view in terms of satisfying the biological drive to eat, to feed yourself and so on, like you can see there's nothing wrong with either of these two foods they're just fine they're fine they're good protein and so on and so forth and they don't do you any harm especially if they're cooked properly and whatever now so what we've got here is a social construction of the basic desire to eat social appetite we could call it a socially constructed appetite which is a part of this wellspring of basic human motive to eat and to have hunger and so on but it's a particularly socially channeled version of it. And that applies across the board, whether we're talking about sexuality, autonomy, with only what you want in any particular situation is totally socially constructed. What's prestigious, what gives you status and social approval and therefore a social pleasure, it's very different in different societies. For the tribal man in the Amazon bringing home a head and whatever gives you a lot of status, whereas you know, in an Australian suburb, that's not so important, really. And having a big car is probably the thing you might want in an Australian suburb, you know, as a young man, whatever. And so while the desire for prestige and social approval is quite universal, the way it's expressed and understood is quite specific. All right, to finish off, I'm just going to say a very small amount about sociology and human nature. I mean, actually, you know, it's pretty obvious what I think about this. I think sociology has a lot of reasons in kind of defining itself as a discipline. You know, like we're not psychology, we're not history, and you know, we're not biology and so on. To say that what human beings do, the desires that people have are all socially constructed. And so accordingly, the concept of human nature is very rarely, if ever, explicit in sociology. I wouldn't say it's never explicit, but it's almost never explicit. But the reality is that the social sciences generally, in which I'm including sociology, anthropology, you know, human geography, whatever, constantly make use of the concept of human nature. They cannot avoid that concept. And when you look at the six basic desires I've listed, if you go through any text in the social sciences, whether it's in the age, you know, opinion column or, or it's in a sociology, high theory sociology book, you can track down those six desires that you can go through that paragraph by paragraph and sentence by sentence and you will find them. You'll find them referenced, you know, whether we're talking about Bourdieu or Foucault or you name and certainly Marx, obviously, and, and, and Durkheim and so on, you will find these six desires referenced. And the explanations sociologists are giving of what they're doing and their explanations of things don't actually make any sense unless you make these assumptions about human nature. And my view would be that the account that I've just given now is a, a really nice, simple account of what human nature is. It's the six basic desires. The desire for food, the desire for physical comfort and health, the desire for social pleasures, the desire to make things and create things, sexuality, autonomy, it's very easy to remember six desires, you know, like whoop, 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 whoop. And it actually, it's like the key. If you keep that in your head, you won't have any problem. Okay, see you later. Next time I'll be talking about the controversial topic. Is aggression part of human nature? The desire to kill, the urge to kill, is that part of human nature? Wait and see.